you're listening to the TB Pod, a podcast for clinicians and policymakers caring for patients with tuberculosis. In these podcasts, we chat with expert clinicians, researchers, policymakers, and advocates about their work in the field of tuberculosis. The TB Pod is prepared by the Australasian Clinical TB Network, ACTNET, and the TB Forum. You can subscribe on iTunes or download episodes through the ACTNET website. Hello, everybody. My name's Dr. Andrew Burke, and I'm a TB specialist at the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a member of the Australasian Clinical TB Network. We're a, a group of researchers and clinicians and scientists who aim to uh, gather people who are interested in TB, including research, and disseminate uh, educational activities. And one of our regular activities is podcasts, and I'm very delighted today to welcome uh, Dr. Philippe Ducrot, uh, who's a co-head of the TB Elimination and Implementation Science Program at the Burnett Institute in Melbourne, Australia. He was also on the steering committee for the practical study on uh, MDR-TB treatments. Welcome, Philip. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So I thought just for the people who are listening today, uh, this is a podcast. It goes for about 20 minutes or so. And our audience is often people who may just treat one or two MDR-TB cases a year. They may not... Con- consider themselves to be deep experts in the area. So we're going to just talk about what is really a very interesting and uh, fascinating study in many ways in the way it's been conducted and very important study in terms of improving or increasing our knowledge of the treatment options available in MDR-TB. So we're going to go through it uh, a little bit slowly, maybe in terms of the study design. But before we get to that point, Philippe, can you just tell us a little bit about why we need these studies in MDR-TB? What's wrong with the current, what's good about the current treatment options we have for MDRTB, and why do you think we still need uh, new trials? Yeah. So, look, drug resistant TB is um, still a, a big problem globally. So, um, resistance to rifampicin, one of the main useful drugs for treating TB, is still occurring in, a, in at least sort of 450,000 people every year. And uh, treatment has been um, something that's been long and complicated and often with lots and lots of side effects. Currently, only about one in three people who develop drug-resistant TB actually get diagnosed and put on treatment globally. So we really need to try and improve things. When I started in drug-resistant TB with um, Médecins Sans Frontières about 12 years ago, we were seeing you know, patients needing treatment for two years, injectables given for eight months, side effects that um, were occurring every day in the majority of patients, lots of nausea, vomiting, and then quite severe side effects like deafness, kidney failure, and so on. And so um, with, with MSF, we, we really discussed with a number of different um, other groups and saw the need for how could we get to shorter treatment that is better tolerated and gives better outcomes. Um, currently, globally, the, the success rate on rifampicin-resistant TB is less than 60%. Um, and so we really do need to improve how effective regimens are and um, also increase their tolerability. Okay. So if we come to the current study that we're 
it's just been really discussed at the union meeting only a week ago, the TB practical study, and you were involved in that, um, Philippe. Do you want to just explain the study design and the drugs you, you chose for consideration in the stage two? And maybe we'll talk a little bit about the difference between stage one and stage two. Now, I appreciate people listening to this don't have access to slides or diagrams. So we'll just uh, explain it in simple terms. Yeah, so um, it's uh, what we'd say is a multi-arm, multi-stage trial. So it's got two stages. Um, the first stage is, is like what you'd traditionally think of as um, a phase two trial. So uh, smaller numbers looking at, um, you know, early outcomes. And so we were looking at um, a, a design of um, three different types of six-month regimens compared with standard of care in the whole trial. And for the first um, stage, what we were looking at is just with these three interventional arms, would they um, clear pre-specified criteria of um, efficacy and safety? And so we analysed cohorts that we were already looking after and we set some benchmarks and we said if, if the regimen doesn't meet that criteria, then we'll drop the regimen and we won't continue enrolling patients into that regimen. Then the second stage was to actually look at um, outcomes um, and looking at 72 weeks post-randomisation. So that way we'd not just see how do people do at the end of treatment, but monitor them um, for a year afterwards to be able to see whether they would get... Uh, uh, recurrence of TB and whether that was due to relapse. So if you look at, just come back to that stage one, so you had three arms, treatment arms, as well as the WHO standard of care, and we'll come to what we mean by standard of care in a moment. Can you tell us the three drugs, if you like, that were common to all three of those arms? Yeah, so um, there was a, a lot of discussion about which, which uh, drugs to put in the regimen, but um, we ended up choosing a backbone of bedaquilin, protominid and linezolid. Um, so the idea being that um, choosing drugs from three different classes with um, data from um, laboratory and uh, phase one and phase two trials suggesting that they had uh, safety and efficacy and, and looking to see how they would perform um, as a backbone. And then we had one arm that just had those three drugs. We had one arm that added on moxifloxacin as a fluoroquinolone and one arm that added on clofazamine. And so these three arms that you were using, were these in separate TB programs around the world? Were they, were they had patients been randomised into these arms or that was just the current practice in those treatments areas? So the, all of these three um, arms, the interventional arms, were, were novel arms that hadn't um, been used in our programs before. Protominid was a new drug that had only been used at that stage in, in a phase two trial. And uh, there was another trial that's been published, the next TB uh, regimen, which is um, bedaquilin, protominid, linezolid, but that used a higher dose of linezolid of 1,200 milligrams a day. And we thought that would be likely to have too much toxicity, so we chose 600 milligrams a day. But at the stage that we started the trial, there was very little data um, available publicly on these uh, new drugs, and programs were only just starting to use 
and scale up Badaquilin and Linezolid. So, you know, it really was um, at that stage, we, we were not sure how this regimen would perform. And that's why we did this two-stage trial and really trying to make sure that we um, had some uh, safety and efficacy data in, in the equivalent of a, a phase two type of trial in, in stage one, but then ensuring that if we continued arms to stage two, that the patients who had been enrolled in stage one, their, their data would be included so that we wouldn't have to enroll as many patients. And where, which countries, or where was this study conducted? So the, the study ended up being conducted at seven sites in three countries. So it was conducted in Uzbekistan and Belarus and South Africa. And so that was because um, MSF had good ongoing collaborations and a long experience of drug-resistant TB in Belarus and in Uzbekistan. Um, and in South Africa, we worked with um, Think, which is a um, a trial group that runs uh, TB clinical trials in South Africa. And so this was six months of all oral treatment? Uh, yep, six months of all oral. Yep. And so how did this compare then to, say, what was called the WHO standard of care uh, and the duration, and, and, and just briefly, I know it's complicated, but briefly some of the points of difference with the, the drugs you might use or not use? Yeah, so the, the standard of care has changed during the time of the trial. The trial first started enrolling in 2017, and the standard of care at that stage was um, a, a long regimen um, that included injectable agents such as um, canamycin or streptomycin. Um, and they would usually include five drugs and it was based on drug sensitivity testing. Um, and it was usually quite um, long and complicated regimens. In, in the guidelines then you could also, for certain indications, include patients on um, bedaquiline treatment, um, which was a new drug that had been showing, uh, showing efficacy, especially um, amongst patients who had more resistance. Um, and for a select group of patients, you could enrol on a shorter nine to 12 month uh, regimen that also included um, injectables and seven different drugs that had been shown in a, um, a non-randomised study to have good results in, in a couple of countries. So I suppose the way the practical study could change practice would be a shorter regimen and also uh, showing a regimen that would have potentially good cure rates without the need for injectables, which obviously has toxicity and complicates treatment. Yeah, so that was um, at the start, we were aiming to have a, a treatment that had no injectables, was shorter, would have easier monitoring and, and uh, better tolerability and be more effect, uh, efficacious. Yeah, so since um, the practical study started in 2017, the WHO guidelines have um, changed and now standard of care no longer includes injectables and all patients would be recommended to have drugs including bedaquiline and linezolid. And that could either be given in a shorter regimen, which still includes seven drugs, or be given as a longer regimen uh, up to 20 months or longer. Um, so it, it has improved as a standard of care, but there's still some complexity and it still involves quite more drugs than what we've looked at in the practical regimens and a longer duration. So of the 
of the three initial treatment arms you were interested in, which one did you decide was the winner and was able to go into the, the stage two of the study? So actually when, when we looked at the, the data from stage one, all three arms actually met the pre-specified criteria. Um, so, you know, by, by that stage, it, it wasn't a winner as such. Um, and we could have chosen uh, which any of the arms to go forward. We ended up, because we'd been initially slow to enrol and because these trials are expensive, we elected to take just one arm forward from the, the was the advice from the steering committee to the sponsor, MSF. Um, and the arm that was chosen was the one that had moxifloxacin as well as the bedaquiline protominid lenezolid backbone. And the reasons for choosing that was um, that we, we actually had the recommendation from an independent data safety monitoring board of which regimens they would have recommended taking forward. We took the data to uh, an independent scientific advisory committee to ask for their advice. And then the steering committee also gave their uh, opinions and trying to take into account the best evidence outside the trial and what we were seeing from those initial, albeit limited numbers of patients. There was only um, just over 50 patients in each arm at that stage. Okay. So we've got the lenezolid, bedaquil and protominid plus the moxifloxacin. So that was taken forward then and then compared to the standard of care, which you've already uh, well explained for us. So what were your findings then from that um, second stage of the study, Philip? Yeah, so um, we had um, planned interim analyses with uh, to be presented to the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board. And we had a recommendation from them in March this year that um, further enrolment in the study um, be stopped because um, the arm containing moxifloxacin was, um, would meet the non-inferiority criteria even if we enrolled all the way to full enrolment and was actually showing superiority and had met pre-specified criteria um, for considering stopping early. And so at that stage, we then updated the data and did a, a database lock and cleaned the data and have done a, redone an analysis. And what we've seen in the big headline result is that if we compare outcomes of the intervention arm containing um, moxifloxacin, it was 89% success versus the standard of care was 52% success. And we might want to pick up what we mean by success there. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, so that's, a, that's a remarkable difference, really. So one question is about what is success and how do we define that? And then also, um, obviously, other studies as well, not just this study, um, it's often controversial when a study's um, stopped early. Um, but maybe just quickly define what you mean by success and then the pros and cons of stopping early. Yeah, so, so for this study, we had a treatment outcome um, as a composite endpoint as the primary outcome. And the, the composite endpoint of unsuccessful treatment being whether patients had died, um, been lost to follow up, had uh, stopped uh, treatment, had failed or had recurrence. And the stopped treatment at, we put in the protocol because we were really concerned about safety. And so 
um, we put in quite a conservative um, uh, definition. And so anyone who had interrupted treatment for more than two weeks was counted as a discontinuation um, for the purpose of outcome analysis. And we were thinking that was for looking at safety from the intervention arms, but actually it turned out that the standard of care met that criteria far more often than the intervention arms did. And, and really, I guess the thinking also was we were looking for a regimen that was not just going to have high efficacy, but was actually going to be well tolerated and not involve this sort of starting and stopping of different and changing different drugs. So really trying to compare regimens of how when you start a regimen, you know, is it tolerated um, till the end of treatment or do you have to make lots of changes as you go along? Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, at the start the NICS-TB study, and that was, I guess, one of the other, up until this study, one of the other landmark MDR-TB studies, and that looked at um, the same drugs, really, as what you, you've got without moxifloxacin, but also about a higher dose of linezolid. Do you, how did your side effect, and that's hard to compare different, maybe, study populations, but how did your side effect profile compare to the NICS-TB, and do you think we should be giving that lower dose of linezolid now as standard? Yeah, so um, it's a great question. So the, just briefly, the NICS-TB trial uh, looked at bedaquil and protomenid linezolid. The linezolid dosing was 1,200 milligrams a day because there were suggestions in mouse models that that would have greater efficacy. Um, and they reported 89% success rate, very high success rates in their select group because they enrolled patients who had higher resistance pre-ex uh, extensively drug-resistant TB or had not tolerated other drugs. And so, uh, you know, a, a six-month or six- to nine-month all-oral regimen reporting very high success rates. They also had a lot of side effects. The majority of patients actually were getting side effects from the linezolid and getting anemia, um, peripheral neuropathy in particular. And in their protocol, patients were able to be stopped on linezolid um, and still counted as continuing on the regimen. Um, so, look, I think there's still questions around the best dose for linezolid. Um, there has been a further study with results um, that have been presented at a conference but not yet published called Xenix that looks at um, three other doses for linezolid. So looking at um, 1,200 milligrams for only two months or looking at 600 milligrams for six months or 600 milligrams for two months. It, there's only a, just over 50 patients in each arm, so it's a pretty small study, um, but it was a randomised study. And they also showed over 84% success in each arm. Um, the one with 600 milligrams for only two months seemed to do a bit worse. Um, so, you know, it, it looks like um, having higher dose of linezolid at least early in treatment, higher dose meaning at least 600 milligrams is, is better for efficacy. Um, but the, the longer you have a higher dose, then the more side effects you get. In, in our regimens, we chose a dose of 600 milligrams daily that if the patient was starting to develop side effects, you could reduce to 300 milligrams daily. And if they had no side effects at four months, you could reduce to 300 milligrams daily for the rest of treatment. So... Erring again on that, that sort of reducing side effects. 
So one of the other, um, just my last question on side effects relates to ECG changes. And I guess we worry a lot about QT prolongation with some of these drugs. And if I'm reading the results correctly, there was a lower incidence or um, of ECG changes in the practical study versus standard of care. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the ARM1 had, um, yeah, really uh, only one greater than grade three or serious adverse event um, for ECG changes. So um, patients who reached sort of greater than 500 milliseconds on corrected QT would require um, a discontinuation. And that was really uncommon in ARM1. Um, there was many more patients in the standard of care who actually um, did have ECG changes. And we're still teasing apart all the explanations for those, I think. Um, you know, depending so early in the study when patients are on injectables, then that's a risk because you can change electrolytes and that can prolong QT. Um, but then it can be the combinations of drugs. So sometimes the combination of you know, um, bedaquiline, clofazamine plus uh, fluoroquinolone, you start to get three potentially QT-prolonging agents and maybe that's what's driving it. So that one's definitely a difference between standard of care yeah. and, and the intervention arm. And I guess that's relevant in many, some some areas would have less ability to monitor the patients perhaps with regular ECGs. That would be an important sort of real-world safety um, you know, plus, wouldn't it? Yeah, so in quite a few of our programs, it's it's difficult uh, to get an ECG to where patients are. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is there's a, a new device that's been um, cleared by the FDA, which um, you can use smartphone monitoring, at least for just QT and arrhythmias. Um, so there is potential improvement in that, but it's still pretty difficult to, to monitor for those kind of changes in, in really remote settings. So I guess... Um, my next question relates to sort of subgroups in the study population. And so, you know, we're giving the same, roughly the same doses and, and treatment duration. And I guess in TB, we often have a one-size-fits-all approach or studies like this are changing that. But say for the HIV group, I think South Africa, I think roughly 50% had HIV co-infection. Was, was it power to show any difference in people with HIV where they needed longer or had different outcomes? So, so I think because we stopped early and we have that first analysis, um, then, then I think we're underpowered when we start to look at some of the subgroups. So we have done a subgroup analysis. Um, and, and I think over that, the HIV um, and also over fluoroquinolone resistance, although the, the trend is that they've got good outcomes, whether this is the best regimen for those groups, I think is something that we need to look at all the data to really see. Um, the good news with this trial is that all the patients who have been enrolled up until this point, which is uh, well over 500 patients, will continue to be followed up um, and to have all their um, outcomes out to 108 weeks. Um, so, you know, we will get further data accumulating. We just, on the advice of the Data Safety Monitoring Board, um, thought that it's important that this analysis should be done and these results should be presented to WHO. Um, for their review to see whether um, there's enough evidence to change guidelines at the moment. Um, and that process has started with the guidelines review um, scheduled for February. So thanks very much. That's really well explained. So I want to just speak generically now about MDRTB studies and how they inform our practice. So I guess 
traditionally we haven't had many options in TB and now we, we have this nice problem where we have maybe more than one treatment regimen which has been tested in RCT like uh, Practical or NixTB. We may end up, and there's other studies in the pipeline. So how do you see the future, say, in five years' time where we might have a number of different regimens which seem to have pretty good uh, safety data and, and outcomes and how are we going to go choosing between these? And I guess I make the comparison to HIV where we have multiple regimens now, um, obviously different availabilities in different uh, countries, but we're trying to choose between one or the other. And how, what do you think the future is looking like for MDRTB in, in that sense? Yeah, maybe I'll tackle that question in, in three parts. One as a clinician, one as a program manager, and, and then finally as a looking forward and what problems are we going to encounter? So as a clinician, you know, we often see patients who maybe don't exactly fit the trial inclusion-exclusion criteria. I think that's pretty common. And so having more than one option, I think, as a clinician is, is better. You know, potentially, you know, if the patient has diabetes, you may not want to give linezolid for six months. You may want to be looking at, at reducing that or having different options um, to prevent peripheral neuropathy, for example. Um, so, so I think having more options is something that clinicians like, as long as they have good, rigorous studies showing data on how those regimens perform. Um, so if, I think for the patients, it's a benefit to have more options, especially if you don't tolerate the one regimen, then, then there's other options for you with good evidence around what could be done. Um, I think as a program manager, it adds, adds complexity in terms of procurement. You need to plan for multiple regimens. But I think HIV programs have generally been doing that pretty well. So, so I think TB programs can do it. And I would say when I started, I, I remember looking in one program, they were using over 20 regimens already. So if we can get that down to three to five really good regimens that are shorter, then we're already well ahead of where we were 10 years ago. And then finally, I guess the problem I would highlight is if you look at our trial and all the trials that are being done, almost every single one has bedaquiline in the regimen. And we've just seen some early reports around bedaquiline resistance. And as the drugs are scaled up, we'll probably get more of that. So the question is, what are we going to have for patients with XDR in the future? And where are those trials going to take us? Okay. We'll wind up there, Philippe, but that was a lot to think about, and that was um, an excellent summary of a, a, a different study design to what we're used to. So thanks very much for all your hard work, and we look forward to the uh, future trials from your group. Thanks, Philippe. Okay. Thanks, Andrew.